But now we leap across to Berlin and falling walls. A great meeting, a festival to celebrate top science. And it'll include more on that brilliant Gaia satellite. Here's Carl Smith. It's a bright autumn day. A cold wind is blowing down the spree. And just upriver from the east side gallery at a converted pumping station that once sat at the edge of the Berlin Wall, scientists, students, entrepreneurs and industry are gathering to share some of the most exciting research breakthroughs of the past year. Creative solutions for our oceans to soak up CO2 from seagrass to ocean beds, unlocking the lingering mysteries inside cells, or taming the wave of AI that's about to crash into every part of our lives. The Falling Walls Festival's guiding question is what are the next walls to fall in science and society? And I met with a few of those being celebrated at the 2023 event, including one of the breakthrough speakers, Argentinian astronomer Professor Amina Helmi, now at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. She's been helping decode an incredible number of bright points from our galaxy, collected by the European Space Agency's multi-million dollar Gaia spacecraft. Professor Helmi, you work in the field of galactic archaeology, so let's just start with what that is. The basic idea is that you can actually use stars to reconstruct history. Stars remember where they come from, in the way they move, in their chemical composition that tells us about where they were born, and in their ages, which tells us when they were born. So using all of that information, we can use the present-day properties of stars to rewind the movie back to reconstruct how our galaxy was put together. Now, you were involved in the Gaia mission, I believe, since its inception. Could you tell me a little bit about the mission and also why it's helping us look at this galactic archaeology? The mission was conceived in the 90s. It was meant to produce a three-dimensional map of the galaxies, a billion stars, and to measure how the stars move through space. Every object that's sufficiently bright will be in that database. And so Gaia observes the sky every six months. The key questions were, how did the galaxy form? But there's also a lot of serendipitous discoveries that come out of this mission. And it turns out that the mission's quality is so high. We initially envisaged it would last for five years, but it's now actually been observing for 10 years and it may last a little bit longer. So it's an amazing data set and the kind of things that we can see now are unbelievable. We can even monitor quakes in stars. So those are called star quakes, where the surface of the star kind of shudders. Yeah, and that tells us about the internal structure of the stars. We are beginning to see extrasolar planets. What I really like about this mission is that there are so many astrophysical applications. And just in case people haven't heard of Gaia before, it's a space-based telescope. It was launched in 2013, and what really made it stand out was its power, its precision. Indeed, Gaia measures very accurately the positions of stars through time. And it does in such a way what you need is a 10 micro arc second precision. And that's equivalent to being able to measure the size of a euro coin on the surface of the moon. Impressive. <laughs> it is very impressive. Yes. You've used this data to help map and create an immense 3D model of the Milky Way. How has this helped us to understand the history of our galaxy. So using the motions, we can actually tell where stars were born. 
And so that is what we needed to unravel what we call mergers. So we think galaxies formed by a merger. So early on, the first galaxies to form were small and because of gravity, they merge, they are cannibalized by other systems. And the memory of that process is actually in the motions of the stars. And one of the first things we did with the second data release of the Gaia mission, which had the motions of so many more stars than we had ever before, was to look for the signatures of the mergers. And we found one. <laughs> and so, so this is the, the mega crash that we were talking about some 10 billion years ago. And you used a great analogy in your talk. You mentioned entering a roundabout as someone from, say, the EU, driving on the right side of the road, and spotting an Australian or a British driver who's driving on the left side of the road and entering the other way. Some of the stars are floating clockwise around the Milky Way center and others are going anti-clockwise. And that's the clue that let you figure out there was this enormous crash. Indeed, that was amazing. That it also that it was so simple. We didn't know what to expect, but most stars in our galaxy, like the sun, they just rotate clockwise around the center. And then among the oldest stars that we have in our galaxy, we see that roughly half of them go the other way. And it means that they come from somewhere else. And then if you look, we analyze the chemical compositions of those stars, and they are distinctly different from those born in our galaxy. Are there any signs that there might be any other galaxies in the mix that were merged in with the Milky Way as well? Yeah, so we're currently eating up another galaxy that's known as the Sagittarius Dwarf, but it's a small object. So Just it's a not, tiny galaxy. It is a tiny, it's not doing a lot of damage. Although Gaia data actually is showing us it's doing more than what we thought it was. <laughs> this is stars bumping into other stars? Not that, but it's actually shaking a bit the Milky Way. So the idea is what you have is basically gravity at work. So just like the Earth is distorting the Moon because of tides, the Moon has also an effect on the Earth, and that's the tides that we see on the oceans. So it's that kind of similar distortions that we then see on galactic scale. But the real big one was this one 10 billion years ago. And what we're trying to do at the moment is to go back even further in time. What happened before? What happened between the Big Bang and the, those 10 billion years ago? The Gaia data set is enormous. It's 2 billion objects. And for each object, you have something like 100 properties. And so searching or gathering the information you're after from this data set is challenging. So we developed in our group a software package that's called VEX, which is publicly available, which is able to visualize and allows you to explore one billion objects in one second. And where to next for Gaia? This satellite is still up there. It's still doing some important work. Where's it looking now? Yeah, so now it's been extended. It's actually the last phase. So it spins and it manages to observe the full sky every six months. And as you do this more and more often, what that means is that you're able to determine the positions of stars more accurately. And so that allows us to actually measure how stars are moving inside other galaxies outside of the Milky Way. Incredible. Professor Mina Helmi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Professor Amina Helmi from the University of Groningen. 
And each year, the Falling Walls Festival also selects breakthrough award winners in different fields. In the field of engineering and technology, this year's breakthrough winner is material scientist Cao Tang Din, originally from Vietnam, but now at Queen's University in Canada. Putting the genie back into the bottle. That's what many scientists are working on. Fossil fuels have been a fairly magical tool that's powered industrialization around the world, but the CO2 that's been emitted is changing our world's climate. For more than 100 years, we've known it is possible to grab CO2 from the atmosphere and convert it back into something else we can use, making new sources of fuel or chemicals out of thin air. But Assistant Professor Kao Tang Ding from Queen's University has been working on new ways to improve this process, and maybe just to start, could I get you to tell me the scope of the problem that we're dealing with here? Huge problem. We are releasing like billions of tons of CO2 per year, like 40 billion tons to be exact. We need to bring down it to zero in 2050. So that is the big task and we will need a lot of technology to achieve that goal. Now this process of taking CO2 from the atmosphere, it's been around for a long time. So what's been the problem with us just doing this? Taking CO2 out of the atmosphere from the industrial process is not a big challenge. Doing the conversion is another issue. The cost is the main issue for now, but also it depends on what kind of products you want to produce from CO2. For simple products, then we are close to the demonstration at large scale. For more complex products, then we are still in the early stage. What sort of products can we make out of CO2 that we take out of the atmosphere? Mostly the hydrocarbon gas or liquid fuels that we are using for our car, for example. But you can also combine carbon dioxide with nitrogen, for example, and you can make even fertilizer. Regarding the product that I'm working on, two things, making fuel out of CO2. I also work on ethylene, which is a precursor for the plastic production. Each year we produce 100 million tons. Think about the CO2 scale, that is billion ton scale. So if you choose a product, if you want to make a big impact, that should have the large market so we can convert a lot of CO2. The main application for ethylene is to make the polyethylene, the plastic bottle that we use every day. How do you take CO2 from the atmosphere and then somehow turn it into these chemicals? The system we are working on, we do also the capture, dilute the CO2 into a solution, and we feed that solution into the reactor. The key thing here is how you design the electrode, which is inside the reactor, where the CO2 is converted. How do we design the electrode that enables that process? That is the key thing. In 2018, you published a paper in Science that showed that a new catalyst that you designed, a new electrode that you designed, allowed greater efficiency over a significant time frame. Now, these are both important things. Tell me about what you did in that process. At that time, the best system for CO2 conversion to ethylene lasts for only a few hours. So we discovered that the main reason for the failure of CO2 conversion to ethylene is the degradation of the electrode where the CO2 is converted to ethylene. So instead of using the traditional way, we add a protecting layer, and by using that design, we can maintain the ethylene selectivity for like, over 150 hours. Just to give us a sense in terms of numbers, mm -hmm. how does the efficiency of this process compared to other similar models. So in terms of selectivity, we are doing pretty well. Like we got like up to 70% out 
our target is about 90-95%. So we, we are quite close. In terms of reaction rate, how fast you can convert CO2 to your product, we are doing well in that aspect as well. We reach our goal of the reaction rate. A great progress in the last couple of years because like 10 years ago is only a few hours. And alongside getting this tech to work efficiently, I believe there's another element that could really unlock this process, which is affordable, renewable energy. Yeah, because the whole idea here is that we convert the carbon dioxide into back to the fuel. If you use the fuel to generate electricity, then, then it doesn't make a lot of sense. If we use the renewable electricity with the low carbon footprint, then we had a chance to produce the product with low carbon footprint. So that is the whole idea. Do you believe the process that you're working on is the one and only solution to this problem of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and finding better ways to use it? We are talking about billion tons of CO2 emission here. And I don't think that there's a single technology that can deal with that challenge. So of course it will require a lot of different kind of technology. The most important one is trying to reduce the CO2 emission in the first place. And this is important when people think that, oh, you can do CO2 capture and conversion. You can just, okay, burn whatever you want to burn. But in reality, is CO2 capture and conversion should be the last option for you to deal with the CO2 emission. Assistant Professor Kao Tang Din from Queen's University in Canada. And Australians were also on the winner's podium at the festival. My name is Emma Ann Carlson. I'm a PhD student at the University of Queensland Fraser Institute. And I'm also a general surgery registrar at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane. And you've just won one of the Emerging Talents Prizes here at the Falling Walls Festival for 2023. Tell us about your project. My project is working with Associate Professor Fiona Simpson and we're repurposing an anti-nausea medication called Prochlorperazine to improve the way that some monoclonal antibodies are used to treat cancer. So there's existing cancer medication and you're trying to improve the efficacy of that medication using an anti-nausea drug? Exactly. A lot of people would know chemotherapy, which can be a bit like a bulldozer when it comes to treating patients. There's lots of side effects and it's not very specific. Monoclonal antibodies are amazing because they're targeted therapy that goes directly onto receptors on the cancer cell surface. But we're running into an issue where a large proportion of patients, up to 70%, don't respond to these medications. What the anti-nausea medication does is inhibits the internalization of those receptors. So that basically means that there's more receptors on the cancer cell surface for those medications to bind to and actually help promote clearance of the tumor by your patient's own immune system. Have you shown this in patients? Not yet. We've done the lab work. We're really lucky to be collaborating with the PA Hospital in Brisbane and St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, where we are now in a safety trial to prove that this is safe in patients to use. And once we've done that, we'll progress to larger efficacy trials in the hope that this will become standard practice in Australia and the world. So you mentioned that the chemotherapy drug that you're talking about here, it costs a pretty exorbitant amount mm. of money. But this anti-nausea drug, which can potentially improve efficacy, only costs, say, $20 through the Australian PBS scheme. So this sounds like a very good value add. Absolutely, and that's exactly why we're super passionate about it. We've estimated that the average cost to Australia per year for non-responders to this medication is over $355 million. If we could make 
each patient who receives this medication respond better with just $20 of extra value, that would be incredible. Do you have any sense of how much this would improve survivability or clearance of the cancer? We'll have to see how our efficacy trials go, but our mouse models and our lab work has been very exciting so far. Now, alongside being a practicing doctor and doing your PhD, you've also found some space to communicate this work. What's it been like kind of stepping into this space of talking about your research as well? Oh, it's been very exciting. This all started as a tool of me overcoming some pretty bad stage fright and performance anxiety that I've had. Well, thanks for talking into the microphone now, too. <laughs> and my supervisor recommended that I get out there more and practice on my research communication. And it really has helped in also understanding my science better to be able to communicate it on a basic level to people who may not be from the same background as you. And any advice as a young researcher overcoming stage fright and stepping out onto the big stage, the global stage, and being named an emerging talent here. Throw your hat in the ring. I think that it's in the Australian spirit to be very humble and to be scared of being proud of your work, but it's really a fantastic opportunity to meet others and to learn your science better as well. Emma, thank you so much and congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Emma Jane Carlson from the University of Queensland with Carl Smith at the Falling Walls event in Berlin, celebrating research that makes walls go down, revealing enlightenment. And this is The Science Show on RN.